I don't know either. I'm not real sure. I have a great day regardless. But I'm going to get my customary nap and do the things I customarily do, so I'll have a great day. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 through 24. Um, the title of our lesson this morning is Live As You Were Called. Live As You Were Called. Now, we're only going to cover eight verses this morning. But if I, and, and what Paul is going to say is very simple, uh, really very easy to understand. But if I were to encapsulate these verses, I would say this, easy to understand, hard to accept. Easy to understand, hard to accept. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about the job of the Holy Spirit? And we said the Holy Spirit's job is not so much to teach us truth, it's to bring us to the point where we accept truth. Y'all remember that? You know, I say that because the majority of the Bible is not hard to understand. When Jesus says, love your enemies, there's no secret code in that, is there? You know, you don't, there's not a secret code. You love your enemies. That's easy to understand. It's, but it's, is it hard to obey? Sure it is. Is it hard to do? Sure it is. But it's not hard to understand. When he says, if someone tries to rob you and take your coat, don't, don't shoot them. Give them your cloak. That's, is that hard to understand what he said? It's easy to understand. What's hard is to accept it and to do it. So the Holy Spirit's job is not so much to, you know, to, to give us the secret codes to all this revelation. It's easy to understand. What his job is is to change our heart, to, to get inside of us so we accept truth. We accept it when we do understand it. This is what we're going to see today. We only got eight verses, and Paul has a point that he wants to make. In fact, he wants to make it so much that he repeats the same thing three times in eight verses. He says the exact same thing three times in only eight short verses. So that, and it's not hard to understand what he says. In fact, it's easy to understand what it is, is it's hard to um, accept. And, and this passage of Scripture has been abused and, and uh, down throughout the years by people trying to lead people their own way, and, and, and so we want to take our time going through it this morning. So... Let's kind of set the context for where Paul is. You remember last week we talked about the fact that the Corinthians had many questions for Paul. You know, they were, they were new Christians, they were living in this society, and, they, they, they had, and their questions really dealt with how should our Christianity affect our normal everyday life. You remember we mentioned the fact they go to the market to buy meat, and there at the market is a piece of meat that's been offered at the temple to demons. And then they, once they've offered it and sacrificed it, they bring it to the market and sell it. And the Christians said, well, can I buy that? Is that okay? Would I be defiling ourselves if we ate meat that had been offered? I mean, they just had normal uh, questions. In fact, it's really the types of questions we should all have. How should our Christianity, our faith, affect things like our marriage, our relationships, our job, our, our, our hobbies, our money, our vote, our food? Can I separate Christianity from all those normal, everyday things? These are the kind of questions that they had. And that's really what makes Corinthians so relevant even today. The principles that Paul laid out in this chapter uh, still apply to us uh, today. Now, as we saw last week, so far in this chapter, Paul has been dealing with issues of marriage and celibacy. And one example, one of the questions you remember they had last week was that I'm a believer and I'm married to an unbeliever. Should I, what should I do? Should I, am I defiling 
myself, if I'm a Christian and I have sexual relations with my wife or my husband and they're an unbeliever, am I somehow defiling myself? Should I get out of that marriage or should I stay in the marriage? Those were the kind of questions they had. And because at that time, there was teaching going around that said, look, you, you, you're defiling yourself if you join yourself to an unbeliever. You need to, you need to get out of that marriage. And so they had many conscientious uh, Christians in the church had real questions about that. What should I do? You know, we mentioned last week, that might seem silly to us, but we have 2,000 years of Christianity to draw on. They had, they had none. They were learning, right? They were figuring this all out. They had questions. So the, one of the questions they had is, what should we do if one spouse puts their faith in Christ and the other one doesn't. Should we? Should the believer leave the marriage in order to stay pure? Now, to that question, Paul says, absolutely not. Do not do that. And we saw that last week in verses 12 through 13. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce her. Uh, him. In other words, what Paul says is putting your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, right, should never destroy an institution like marriage that God has ordained. You shouldn't walk away from that. That's a God-ordained institution. If at all possible, stay in the marriage that you were in when you got saved and, and, and sanctify that marriage. Now, as we saw last week, it would be great that in, if every marriage you had where you had a believer and an unbeliever, it would be great if the, believer would, if the unbeliever would stay in that marriage, right? That would give the Christian spouse the opportunity through patience and prayer and exemplary conduct to convert that spouse over to uh, Christ. But that doesn't always happen. You remember Jesus came and he said, Don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Many times Christianity will turn a brother against a sister a husband against a wife, a daughter against a mother, a son against a father. You know, sometimes Christianity becomes a sword that severs, um, and, that, and that can happen. Sometimes the, the unbelief and the rebellion of an unbelieving spouse can turn Christianity into a sword that severs. But that doesn't change the principle that Paul has laid out. Stay in your marriage. Don't seek to abandon your marriage right? Stay in that marriage and sanctify it. Now, although Paul is only answering one question about marriage, what he's really doing is laying out a principle that applies to other aspects of our life, and that is this. Coming to faith in Christ shouldn't make a person want to abandon or run away from things they're involved in, like their relationships, their jobs, their marriages, things like that. It should make you want to stay and, and make those things holy. You know, do you, do you understand, I think you agree with me, as, as people, don't we, if we're in something that we consider bad, don't we just want to get away from it as quick as we can? It's human nature to run away from that. But when God comes in the picture, what God wants to turn, sometimes what He wants to do in certain situations, He wants to take that bad thing and turn it into good. He, he wants to take that. That's what Paul is saying. Stay there. Stay there and take that thing that, that's not the best. It's not the most ideal, but make it holy. Sanctify it. Let God get the glory out of that thing. That's this kind of a principle that Paul's laying out. Now, this is where we pick up <clears throat> today's text. 
Paul is saying if you're married to an unbeliever, stay in your marriage. But now that's a principle that he wants to expand into other questions and other areas in our life. Now, real quickly, I'm going to tell you why he's going to do what he's doing, and then we're going to kind of get into the verses and explain that. Why would Paul be so picky? Why would he be so adamant about you need to stay where you are? Okay? Why would he need to go so far as to say you need to do that? Well, I want you to understand something. I want you to think about it just for a second. The specific issue that Paul is dealing with is that Christianity is being used as an excuse or a reason to break up a marriage. Right? People are coming in and saying, uh, you know what, I'm a Christian. Remember we said last week, I'm a Christian now. Uh, there was a teaching going around then that celibacy was the highest form of the Christian life. So there was actually people who would leave their marriages to become celibate. And, and Paul wants to say, no, don't, don't do that. Don't break up your marriage. That's, that's not what God has called you to do. Now you've got these other people who are married to unbelievers, and they're saying, you know, I need to leave my marriage. I'm going to go find me a good Christian man or a good Christian woman, and I'm going to get out of this thing because I, I can be a better Christian. I can be more spiritual over here than I can in, in this situation. So you've got these situations where people are breaking up marriages to, because of Christianity, saying Christianity gives me a reason or excuse to do that. Now, this has much bigger implications. For example, Christianity could be used as an excuse to break up families. Christianity could be used as, as an excuse to break up businesses. Christianity could be used as an excuse to break up governments, right? In fact, it can be used as an excuse to break up any social institution. That's what Paul wants to guard against, okay? He, he's, th- th- and you've got to understand this, and we're going to go through this very slowly today, because this is a very particular passage of Scripture that we can misunderstand. You see, Paul wants to make absolutely sure. Remember, Christianity is just being born, right? They're in the, they're in the early stages of it. Paul wants to make sure that people don't turn Christianity into a social movement, okay? He wants to make sure that people understand that being a Christian is about the inside, not the outside. Being a Christian is about spiritual regeneration, not social regeneration. See, there's a tendency in human nature to take Christianity and start turning it into this, this, this social thing. We're going to change society, I'm going to change this. And Paul says, don't do that. You've got to understand that Christianity is an inside thing. It's a spiritual thing. It doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the inside uh, out. And it can exist in any social situation. It doesn't matter where you are. You don't, cha- you don't become more spiritual by leaving your marriage. You don't become more spiritual by, by getting out of something. You don't become more happy or more content. Christianity can flourish wherever you are and in any situation you are. That's what he wants to get across. Because it's human nature, as we'll see here in a minute, to change the outside. And think by changing the outside, we'll be more spiritual. We'll be more content. We'll be happier. If I can just get out of this marriage, if I can just do this, I can be what God wants me to be. Paul's saying, you got it all backwards. It's got nothing to do with the outside. It's all about... Uh, the inside, and that's what he wants them to see. You see, Christianity was never designed to be a disruptor of social relationships. Now, will it change society? Of course, but it'll change it like leaven, adding a little bit of leaven to that, to that meal or to that, that, uh, uh, to that 
flour, whatever, that changes things. It changes it like leaven, not like dynamite. It doesn't just come in and blow everything up. That's not the way it was intended to work. As long as Christianity focuses on the inside, spiritual regeneration, it can flourish anywhere. Look at China. If you go Google China, Christianity is exploding in China. Why? Because it's in that person and that person and they're meeting in that. It's got nothing to do with government. It's got nothing to do with voting. It's got nothing to do with social change. It's just about individual people and it is blowing up. Now look at Christianity in America. What's happening to it? It's dying on the vine. Why? Because years ago we changed it from an inside thing to an outside thing. We're going to change society. We're going to get involved in politics. We're going to do all these things. And we forgot about the fact that Christianity changes from the inside out, not the outside in. See, Paul is warning right here, don't let that happen. That's not how this is supposed to work. Because if you do, you'll kill it. It's supposed to grow and, and develop and, and flourish in individual hearts. Now, let's turn to our scripture. Verse 17. So Paul is very clearly going to state the principle. Again, remember what I said early on. This is not hard to understand, but it is hard to accept. Look at verse 17. Paul says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule or principle in all the churches. So, so remember, he's just, taught, he's just answered that question about marriage. He says, yes, if you're in a marriage to an unbeliever, stay there. And then he immediately expands that and says, let me give you a principle. When it comes to your relationships, when it comes to uh, your job, when it comes to all these social things you're involved in, let me give you a principle to live your life by. And this is it. Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule or this is my principle in all the churches. Now, as I mentioned earlier... In today's passage, Paul, it's only eight verses. Paul's going to say that exact same thing three times. And in each one of the times that he says it, there's a particular word that he's going to use, and that word is called. Look at verse 17. Let me read it again. Let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him and in which God has called him. Verse 20. Everyone should remain in the state in which he was called. Verse 24. So, brethren, in whatever state each of you were called... There let him remain with God. Now, we often use the word calling to refer to our vocation, right? I, my calling is to be a homemaker. My calling is to be a salesman. My calling is to be a lawyer, you know, the, et cetera. But that's not what Paul's talking about. When Paul says, remain in the state in which you were called, he's not talking about your vocation. He's not talking about your, your marriage state. He's not talking about any of those things. Paul here is referring to the divine call by which you were drawn to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, he's talking about the call of God to salvation. Does everybody see that? He's saying, remain in the state you were in which you were called. See, what he's saying here is this. Remain in the situation, remain in the state you were in when you were saved. Okay, whatever state you're in, whatever, if you're in a marriage, when you got saved, stay in that marriage. If you're in a job, a particular job, when you got saved, stay in that job. If you're in a particular social situation, you're a, a, a particular anything, his rule of thumb, again, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but his rule or principle is stay there. 
Don't, don't look to change everything. Stay where you were when God called you, when God converted you, when God saved you. Now, if Paul stopped right there and didn't say anything else, this could get really confusing, right? You would say, well, now, wait a minute, Paul. Do you mean a prostitute should stay a prostitute? Should, a, should an unmarried couple living together remain unmarried and living together? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Well, of course he's not saying that, right? God would never have people remain in sin. Paul makes that clear, Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Paul's very clear. God doesn't leave you in sin. You have been washed. You've been clean. You've been sanctified. You've been made holy. God clean, takes you out of the mud and cleans you up. He doesn't want you to stay in the mud. That, that's obvious. So Paul's not talking about here about remaining in sin. That's obviously not what he means. So he needs to go into more detail. He needs to explain, okay, let me, let me give you a couple of examples, Paul says, to, to kind of get across the point that, that I'm making. So he gives two examples. Now, the first example he gives is circumcision. Now, let's read verses uh, eight, verse 18. He says this, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Now, we all know what circumcision is, right? Circumcision at that time is what separated Jews from the Gentiles. Okay, now today, in today's culture, you know, we have our male children circumcised. It's more of a cultural thing. Back then, that was brand new. Nobody was circumcised. When the Jews came along, if you go back and read Genesis, when God entered into a covenant with Abraham... And at that time, any time two people entered into an agreement, into some kind of covenant, they would always have some kind of sign that marked that agreement. Today, if, if you and I were to enter into agreement, we might sign a contract, right? Or, if, if, or we might just shake hands, right? We might just say, let's shake on it. Well, that's the sign of the agreement. There's some sign that you've entered into an agreement. So God tells Abraham, okay, I'm going to enter into an agreement with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And you're going to obey me, right? Here's the sign. I want you to have all of your male children circumcised. They would actually carry the sign in their, in their flesh. Again, every covenant contains that sign. And you see that in a lot of different ways. Everybody knows the story of God and, and Noah, right? He gave Noah, I'll give you a sign that I, I, my, my promise to you, my agreement with you is we won't, I won't destroy the world anymore. What's the sign of that? That's the rainbow, right? So you see this in, in a lot of different uh, covenants. So again, in the case of Abraham and his descendants, uh, the sign is circumcision. They actually carry it in their flesh. Now remember, in that day, only Jews were circumcised. That's, that's changed over the years, but back then it was very clear. Everybody else looked at them like they were weird. That's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. Who would do something like that? Why would you do something like that? So if you walked around and you were a Jew, everybody knew you were a, a, a Jew, right? If you went to the public restroom, that guy said, that guy's a Jew. You just figured it out because they carried it around in their flesh. So what Paul is saying, by the way, Paul doesn't really care. Circumcision is a cutting of the flesh. Paul's not overly concerned with that. What Paul's concerned with is what does circumcision mean, okay? So what he's saying then is this. If you were saved as a Gentile, don't try to become a Jew. 
And if you were saved as a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile. See, that's what circumcision means. It separates Jews from Gentiles. So Paul's not saying just about some flesh thing. He's saying, don't, if you're a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile. And if you're a Gentile, don't try to become a Jew. Now, don't forget that being Jewish represented a race, an ethnicity, and a nationality, right? If you were Jewish, they were a particular race, a particular ethnicity, a particular nationality. Paul's saying, don't worry about all that. Don't, don't, try, to, don't try to change who you are. Don't try to change your race or your nationality or your ethnicity. Now, I doubt many of us here would have any problem with that. Paul's saying, if you're a Jew, just stay a Jew. If you're a Gentile, stay a Gentile. In fact, many people today say the same thing. Be proud of who you are, right? We have people out there preaching white pride. We have people preaching black pride. We have people talking about being proud you're an American. We have people saying, be proud you're Mexican or be proud you're Swedish or whatever. In other words, be proud of who you are. Okay, that's, we, we say, okay, we, we people get that. But I want you to listen as Paul gives his reason for what he says. Look at verse 19. This is Paul's reason for saying, if you're a Jew, stay a Jew. If you're a Gentile, stay a Gentile. This is his reason. For, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is your Jewishness, that means nothing. Your Gentileness, that means nothing. He, he's saying the, the reason he says to stay where you are is because changing means absolutely nothing in the eyes of God. Now, in that day, to tell a Jew that their circumcision meant nothing, that was probably the most offensive thing you could say to them. Because you're basically saying your Jewishness means absolutely nothing to God. Everybody with me? That, that, that was about the most offensive thing he could say. And to be quite honest, if we really understand what Paul is saying in this, this scripture, it'll probably offend us too. Because what he's saying is that your race, your nationality, your ethnicity, it means nothing to God. Absolutely nothing. Doesn't give you any points with God, doesn't make him love you more, doesn't make him love you less. It means absolutely nothing to, to God. The only thing that matters to God is one thing only, obedience. Obedience. Now, in case you haven't figured it out yet, there's something you need to understand about Paul. He is a very unfashionable thinker. Okay, He will just come out, he doesn't care, he could care less if something is politically correct, he doesn't care, right? He, he doesn't change with the wind, our culture goes up and down and changes with the wind. Paul doesn't change at all. He's got something he wants to say, and he just says it. And to be quite honest with you, he's going to tell you the truth, and if it offends you, it offends you. He really doesn't care. He's going to give you the truth. But see, that's what makes him eternally relevant. That's why we're here 2,000 years later talking about things that he wrote back then. 2,000 years have gone by, and we're still studying his words. Because he just spoke truth. He didn't, he didn't speak with the culture. I mean, I, the more you go through Corinthians, you see how relevant it is for today. Why? Because it's truth. He didn't just deal with cultural things. He dealt with principles that, that stand the test of time. And one of the things you find out about that Paul, Paul is radically God-oriented. He is radically God-oriented. I mean everything, everything falls under the priority of God. When Paul eats, he thinks, what does God say about this? When Paul votes, he says, what does God think about this? 
When Paul has a job or a marriage or anything, what does God think about it? It's everything falls under submission to God. That's, that's, and he is radically God-oriented. There's too many people today that separate what they do on Sunday from what they do on Monday. They just, you know, this is my Christianity, but this is my job. This is my Christianity, but this is my vote. This is my Christianity, but this is my marriage. Paul, that, that's ridiculous to him. You can't separate those two, any of those. That makes no sense to Paul. Paul, to him, God is everything in your life. Christianity is everything in your life. Everything has to fall under what would God think about this. The, again, the idea that your sexual relationships or your marriage or your job or your vote or the way you eat, that somehow you could separate those things from being a Christian, that, that, that makes no sense to Paul whatsoever. That's ridiculous. Everything falls under the priority of God, and obedience always takes priority. Now, it's a good point here to ask a question. Paul says this, if you're a Gentile, don't try to become a Jew. If you're a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile. Now, let me ask this question. Why would somebody want to do that? I want you to think about this real quickly. Why would somebody who's got saved and they're a Jew, and they look over there and say, you know what, I need to go, I want to go be a Gentile. Or why would somebody that's got saved and they're a Gentile want to become a Jew? Okay, why, why do people want to change? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because it's, there's something inside of every one of us that always wants to change the outside. That's just the way we are. See, we look over there and say, they're more spiritual than, than I am. <laughs> that, that religion is more spiritual. If I, if I was in that religion, or if I was in that church, or if I was in that community, I could, I'd be more spiritual. I could be more disciplined. I, you know, I, you look over there and they wear, you know, you think, man, they, they really dress religious. They wear cooler clothes than we do. If I go over there and dress like they did, I, I'd be more spiritual. I, I could be closer to, if I wasn't in this marriage, if I got out of this situation, I could be closer to God. I wouldn't have all this on me all the time. I could get out of this. I could be closer. To, is everybody with me? That's human nature. You just, if I can change my circumstances, I can be better. If I can change the outside, I can be better. See, that's what Paul is saying here. That's got, he's saying to us, it's got no, that means nothing. Your outside circumstances has nothing to do with your spirituality, has nothing to do with how close you are to God, nothing. It's all about the inside. That's what he's going to keep driving home. You see, the fallacy of the human heart is that we think changing our circumstances will change who we are on the inside. See, the truth is we're unhappy and discontented. If you're unhappy and discontented, it's not because of the situation you're in. It's because on the inside you're not right with God. You're not in the right relationship with God. It's got nothing to do with the outside. I had somebody call me the other day was in a situation about four, five, six years ago, and everything was going wrong, and they picked up and they moved. And I told, he told me the other day, and he said, Derek, he said, I, I thought if I moved, I could get away from some of those things. And he said, what I realized, I just picked it all up and took it with me. Absolutely. That's the dead-on truth. Because your discontentedness, your unhappiness, whatever it is going has nothing to do with your situation or your social status or your state or your race or your nationality. It's got to do because on the inside, you're not right with God. 
in your relationship is not where it's supposed to be. That's the, that's the part of all that. You can try to move, you can get out of your marriage, you can do all that, and let me just tell you, you'll turn right around and you get to the new marriage, you get to the new city, you get to the new job, and you just took it all with you because it was all on the inside to, to start with. Now, let me give you one quick warning here. Don't take, remember, this is a, did you hear what Paul said? This is my rule or my principle. Don't take Paul's principle and make it an absolute prohibition of change. Paul's not saying if you're in a job, for the rest of your life you cannot change that job. That's not what Paul's saying. Please understand this here. Everybody with me? That's not, it's not an abs. Because, by the way, if you make it an absolute prohibition to change, you just turned it into legalism. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying the rule is don't look outside yourself for change. Look inside yourself. It's not your marriage that's dragging you down. It's not your marriage that makes you unhappy. It's who you are on the inside. Quit thinking that your outside circumstances is going to make you happier or more content or more spiritual or closer to, to God. By the way, I just want to show you, how do I know Paul doesn't mean this as an absolute prohibition? Well, look at Acts 16. Paul goes out on a journey. He's going to go into a town. And he's going to evangelize Jews. And he's, got a, he's got a young man with him by the name of Timothy. And Timothy's uh, father was a Greek. His mother was a, was a Jew. So he was half Jew, half Gentile, and he'd never been circumcised. Now, Paul just said what? Circumcision means nothing. But he takes Timothy, and he has him circumcised. Why? Because he's fixing to go preach to the Jews, and he doesn't want anything to be a stunt. He doesn't want them to... They're sitting there listening to the message, and they say, well, and all they can focus on is that kid ain't circumcised. Paul says, I'm going to get rid of anything that would be a stumbling block to them believing. So he's not, this is not an absolute prohibition. Paul knows whether Timothy's circumcised or not means absolutely nothing to God. That means nothing. But if it's a stumbling block to people here in the gospel, I'll, I'll get rid of that stumbling block, even though it means nothing. I'll become all, all things to all men so they'll hear the gospel. Everybody with me? So it's a principle. It's not an absolute prohibition of change. So again, what Paul is doing is showing that obedience to the commands of God is infinitely more important than anything else. That should be the driving force in our life, the one thing that takes priority over everything else. Circumcised or not, white or black, American or Swedish, those are just outside differences, right? Make obedience a big deal. That's what Paul is saying. That should be the driving force of your life. By the way, obedience is a sign of a heart that's submitted to God. On the inside, when you're submitted to God and God's your priority, what flows out of that kind of heart is obedience. That's why Paul is just pointing us to the inside. That's what God cares about. Now, verse 20, Paul says it one more time. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. You see, Paul is saying Christians should not be preoccupied with changing their outward circumstances. We should be preoccupied with changing the inside. If you want to know this, what these whole eight verses mean, it's saying it right there. Christians should never be preoccupied with changing the outside. They should always preoccupy themselves with changing who they are on the inside. That's, that's what Paul is, is saying. Okay? Now, he's going to give us a second example. In the, second, the first dealt with race, ethnicity, nationality. The second example is going to deal with social status. 
Okay, these were really the two things back in those days that meant everything to everybody. Who you were, he's a Greek. He's a Jew. He's this, he's that, right? I'm a Roman citizen. The other thing that mattered was your social status, okay? Those things were, were very big deals back then. Not so much in America today, but, I mean, go, for example, go to India. Social status over there today is a huge deal, and Paul is going to deal with that with the issue of slavery. So let's read what he says in verse 21. He says this, Were you a bondservant? Now, that word in the Greek is doulos, and it means slave. Okay? And I will talk about that in just a second. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Let me say a couple words here about that word doulos before we go on. You can go, you can go back home today, get any Greek, go online. And, and, and by the way, the Internet is like the best thing ever. Do you understand what the Internet is? You literally, can you imagine 30 years ago and you got to go buy books? Literally, you have every library in the world, every commentary in the world, every lexicon in the world at your fingertips. You can go look at any Greek lexicon, and I looked, I looked at as many as I could find, and you will always find that the word doulos means one of two things. It either means servant or it means slave. There's no word for bondservant in the Greek, none. Okay? How many of y'all over the years, we've heard that word bondservant over and over and over again? That's not in the Greek. That word means servant or, or slave. Yet, when you go look at most modern translations, they created a new word a new hyphenated word called bondservant, which there is no Greek. Again, there's nothing like that in the Greek. In the Greek, it's either servant or slave. There's no middle, there's no middle ground. Okay? It's just servant or, or slave. Now, why would they do that? Why do you think translators would invent a new word instead of just saying slave? <clears throat> I didn't like it. Because I, I think because it's the, it's the historical stigma that surrounds that word. You see, they want to lessen or, or mitigate the, the effects of that word because let's face it, who likes that word? Nobody likes that word. Nobody wants to be a slave. It, you know, if we've got, we've got slavery in our history, we don't want to read it. We don't want to... That just word has a lot of bad connotations to it. So a lot of, a lot of modern translations invented a new word and called it bondservant as somehow that makes it a little bit nicer. But the word in the Greek is slave. It's just absolutely slave. There's no way uh, around that. Now, if you think, by the way, that the word slavery would only be a problem for modern people in America, you'd be wrong, okay? In fact, it was probably more of a problem for the Greeks than it even is for us. In the Greek, in that day and age, I did a little bit of research on that. In that day and age, in, in the Mediterranean basin, there were probably about, they estimate about 12 million slaves. So the, the Romans and the Greeks were equal opportunity slavers. What I mean by that is they didn't enslave based on race. They didn't enslave based on nationality. They just enslaved everybody. If, if they went to a war and they won a battle, they'd bring back prisoners and make them slaves. In that day, there was no uh, welfare system. So a lot of people, if you got into debt or you just didn't have anything to eat, you'd sell yourself into slavery. 
for five years, ten years, whatever. You'd actually sell yourself into slavery to pay your debt off. So you had a lot of slaves that were, people just had to go into slavery in order to, to be able to uh, get by. And in that day and age, people, they looked down, slavery was a despicable way to live. If you were a slave, you were looked upon as like, you were the lowest of the low. Okay, you were the absolute lowest of the low. The supreme virtue for a Greek or a Roman was freedom. You know what? Who was it said, "Live free or die"? Right. That was kind of the way the Greeks and the Romans said, "If I'm not free, I don't want to live." Freedom to them was everything. If you were a slave, that was the lowest, most despicable way that you could possibly live. They were all about get free, get free, gain your freedom. Okay. Now. To that society, Paul comes along and says this in verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't worry about it. Stay where you are. Okay? If the opportunity comes along for you to be made free, fine. Take it. But what he's saying is don't be preoccupied with freedom. Don't preoccupy yourself with saying, i got to get out of this situation. Well, why? Because it's what we just said, Right? You can be a Christian. You can be happy and content and close to God in any state you're in, even as a slave. Don't think, man, if I can just get out of this, I'll be happy. If I can just be free, I can... Paul says, no, it's got nothing to do... In fact, he took probably the most onious situation he could think of, which was slavery, and he's saying, even in that situation you can flourish as a Christian. Nobody can, can enslave your soul. Nobody can enslave your mind. Nobody can enslave your heart. Even in that situation, you can flourish. Don't be preoccupied with changing it. If, again, if the situation comes along and you can, great. Take it. Avail yourself of it. But don't be preoccupied with changing that. Now, again, immediately when I read that, I'm thinking, why, Paul? Why would you say something like that? Why wouldn't I do everything in my power to get out of that life as, as soon as possible? I want you to watch what Paul says. Paul could have given the same answer, because I always ask why, just like he knows his readers. When he says, don't try to get out of that, he knows they're thinking, well, are you crazy? And if I was a slave, I'm going to get out of here. Of this. I'm, going to, I'm going to do everything in my power. My whole life is going to be revolve around getting out of that. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't preoccupy yourself with that. Now, the question is, why would you say that, Paul? Well, Paul could have said the same thing he said about circumcision. He could have said, because being a slave is nothing, and being free is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is everything. He could have said the same answer. And that would have been true, by the way. But Paul's going to give us a new reason, and he's going to deepen our understanding even more. Look at verse 22 and 23. Why, Paul? Why, if I'm a slave, should I not try to get out of that? This is what he says. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You see, I, one of the things I love, I love to walk, watch Paul put his theology to work. See, he's saying here once again that Christian life is not about your outside circumstances. It's all about the spirit on the inside. You see, it's the person who is saved who's truly free. Isn't that what Jesus said? 
in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you are what? You're free indeed. He means you're really free. See, the fact is, what he, Paul's saying is, there's a slave over there in that house who's freer than the king of Rome or Caesar. There's a slave in that house who's freer than any king or any noble that's walking around that doesn't know Jesus. That, that freedom has nothing to do with the outside. It's all about the inside. Again, he keeps drawing us back to that. It's not about your outside circumstances that dictate whether you're free or whether you're a slave. It's about who you are on the inside. By the way, he says, even if you're walking around free and you're a Christian, on the inside you should be a slave to Christ. Right? So, so again, it's all about what, what happens on the inside. So Paul looks to the slave who may feel hopeless and he says this, In Christ, you're a free man. You were bought with a price. Nobody can enslave your soul or your heart or your mind. Your, your faith in Christ makes you freer than, than any king. Now again, I, I, this is not a dead and fast rule. Don't make it that. In fact, Paul goes on to say it. If you get a chance to be free, take it. Paul would never expect a slave... Who, who was sitting there, and the, and the opportunity comes along to get freed, Paul would never expect a slave to say, well, I'm not going to do it, because Paul said, I have to stay here. He doesn't expect that at all, and so he goes on to say, listen, if you get an opportunity, take it. That's great. But what he's saying, don't preoccupy yourself with freedom, as if that's going to solve all your problems. Don't preoccupy yourself with changing the outside, because who you are, your real freedom is on the inside. Okay? And that's a real lesson for, for all of us. Again, the outside is never the source of true freedom. It'll never be the source of your happiness or your contentment or your joy. Those things never come from changing the outside. They only come from the insides. By the way, Paul also speaks to the free man. If you're a free person, he says, don't think, don't become proud because you're free. Remember that on the inside, you are a slave to Christ. You should submit everything to his authority. And you should do it happily and, and humbly. Finally, in verse 24, Paul's going to repeat it one more time. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let them remain with God. Now, there's the crucial phase right there, a phrase. What matters in this life, again, is not our outside circumstances. What matters is our relationship to God. What matters is whether that relationship is real. So real, by the way, that it affects everything we do and everything that we are. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for 1 Corinthians. We thank you for these eight verses, and we thank you for the principles that Paul lays out 2,000 years ago that are still relevant to us today. Father, if there's anybody here today that is in a bad situation, it could be a marriage, it could be a relationship, it could be a job, it could be whatever. And they, they're thinking in their mind like a natural person thinks, if I could just get out of this, if I could just get away from this, I pray that this moment will be a change in their life, that this day the Holy Spirit will open their heart to accept the truth that, that their unhappiness, their discontentedness, their, uh, all of that has nothing to do with that situation, but it has everything to do with their relationship with you on the inside. God, I pray this day that there will be a heart change in their life. They'll look at that situation differently and they'll turn and begin to glorify you through that relationship. They'll begin to make that relationship holy, sanctify it, 
uh, that your will will be done in that relationship or job or status or whatever thing that is. Lord, we pray for our service today. We pray, God, that you're in, in all that we do and all that we say, that you'll receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.